Section 27 of Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Select Sermons of Jonathan Edwards. Section 27 The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. Part 2. Here I would particularly show 1. That if God should eternally destroy you, it would be agreeable to your treatment of God. 2. That it would be agreeable to your treatment of Jesus Christ. 3. That it would be agreeable to your behavior towards your neighbors. 4. That it would be according to your own foolish behavior towards yourself. 1. If God should forever cast you off, it would be exactly agreeable to your treatment of Him. That you may be sensible of this, consider, 1. You never have exercised the least degree of love to God, and therefore it would be agreeable to your treatment of Him if He should never express any love to you. When God converts and saves a sinner, it is a wonderful and unspeakable manifestation of divine love. When a poor lost soul is brought home to Christ, and has all his sins forgiven him, and is made a child of God, it will take up a whole eternity to express and declare the greatness of that love. And why should God be obliged to express such wonderful love to you, who never exercised the least degree of love to him in all your life? You have never loved God, who is infinitely glorious and lovely, and why then is God under obligation to love you, who are all over deformed and loathsome as a filthy worm, or rather a hateful viper? You have no benevolence in your heart towards God. You never rejoiced in God's happiness. If he had been miserable, and that had been possible, you would have liked it as well as if he were happy. You would not have cared how miserable he was, nor mourned for it, any more than you now do for the devil's being miserable. And why then should God be looked upon as obliged to take so much care of your happiness, as to do such great things for it, as he doth for those that are saved? Or why should God be called hard, in case he should not be careful to save you from misery? You care not what becomes of God's glory. You are not distressed how much soever his honor seems to suffer in the world. And why should God care any more for your welfare? Has it not been so, that if you could but promote your private interest and gratify your own lusts, you cared not how much the glory of God suffered? And why may not God advance his own glory in the ruin of your welfare, not caring how much your interest suffers by it? You never so much as stirred one step, sincerely making the glory of God your end, or acting from real respect to him. And why then is it hard if God doth not do such great things for you, as the changing of your nature, raising you from spiritual death to life, conquering the powers of darkness for you, translating you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son, delivering you from eternal misery, and bestowing upon you eternal glory. You were not willing to deny yourself for God. You never cared to put yourself out of your way for Christ. Whenever anything cross or difficult came your way, that the glory of God was concerned in, it has been your manner to shun it and excuse yourself from it. You did not care to hurt yourself for Christ, whom you did not see worthy of it. And why then must it be looked upon as a hard and cruel thing, if Christ has not been pleased to spill his blood and be tormented to death for such a sinner? 2. 
You have slighted God, and why then may not God justly slight you? When sinners are sensible in some measure of their misery, they are ready to think it hard that God will take no notice of them, that he will see them in such a lamentable distressed condition, beholding their burdens and tears, and seem to slight it and manifest no pity to them. Their souls they think are precious. It would be a dreadful thing if they should perish and burn in hell forever. They do not see through it that God should make so light of their salvation. But then ought they not to consider that as their souls are precious, so is God's honor precious? The honor of the infinite God, the great King of heaven and earth, is a thing of as great importance, and surely may justly be so esteemed by God, as the happiness of you, a poor little worm. But yet you have slighted that honor of God, and valued it no more than the dirt under your feet. You have been told that such and such things were contrary to the will of a holy God, and against his honor, but you cared not for that. God called upon you and exhorted you to be more tender of his honor, but you went on without regarding him. Thus have you slighted God. And yet is it hard that God should slight you? Are you more honorable than God, that he must be obliged to make much of you, how light soever you make of him and his glory? And you have not only slighted God in time past, but you slight him still. You indeed now make a pretense and show of honoring him in your prayers, and attendance on other external duties, and by sober countenance, and seeming devoutness in your words and behavior. But it is all mere dissembling. The downcast look and seeming reverence is not from any honor you have to God in your heart, though you would have God take it so. You who have not believed in Christ have not the least jot of honor to God. That show of it is merely forced, and what you are driven to by fear, like those mentioned in Psalm 66.3, through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves to thee. In the original it is, shall lie unto thee, that is, yield feigned submission, and dissemble respect and honor to thee. There is a rod held over you that makes you seem to pay such respect to God. This religion and devotion, even the very appearance of it, would soon be gone and all vanish away, if that were removed. Sometimes it may be that you weep in your prayers, and in your hearing sermons, and hope God will take notice of it, and take it for some honor, but he sees it all to be hypocrisy. You weep for yourself, you are afraid of hell, and do you think that is worthy of God to take much notice of you, because you can cry when you are in danger of being damned, when at the same time you indeed care nothing for God's honor? Seeing you thus disregard so great a God, is it a heinous thing for God to slight you, a little wretched despicable creature, a worm, a mere nothing, and less than nothing, a vile insect that has risen up in contempt against the majesty of heaven and earth? 3. Why should God be looked upon as obliged to bestow salvation upon you, when you have been so ungrateful for the mercies he has bestowed upon you already? God has tried you with a great deal of kindness, and he never has sincerely been thanked by you for any of it. God has watched over you, and preserved you, and provided for you, and followed you with mercy all your days, and yet you have continued sinning against him. He has given you food and raiment, but you have improved both in the service of sin. 
he has preserved you while you slept, but when you arose, it was to return to the old trade of sinning. God, notwithstanding this ingratitude, has still continued his mercy, but his kindness has never won your heart, or brought you to a more grateful behavior towards him. It may be you have received many remarkable mercies, recoveries from sickness, or preservations of your life when exposed by accidents, when if you had died you would have gone directly to hell, but you never had any true thankfulness for any of these mercies. God has kept you out of hell, and continued your day of grace, and the offers of salvation, so long a time. While you did not regard your own salvation, so much as in secret to ask God for it, and now God has greatly added to his mercy to you, by giving you the strivings of his spirit, whereby a most precious opportunity for your salvation is in your hands. But what thanks has God received for it? What kind of returns have you made for all this kindness? As God has multiplied mercies, so have you multiplied provocations. And yet now are you ready to quarrel for mercy, and to find fault with God, not only that he does not bestow more mercy, but to contend with him, because he does not bestow infinite mercy upon you, heaven with all it contains, and even himself, for your eternal portion. What ideas have you of yourself, that you think God is obliged to do so much for you, though you treat him ever so ungratefully for his kindness, wherewith you have been followed all the days of your life? 4. You have voluntarily chosen to be with Satan in his enmity and opposition to God. How justly, therefore, might you be with him in his punishment? You did not choose to be on God's side, but rather chose to side with the devil, and have obstinately continued in it, against God's often repeated calls and counsels. You have chosen rather to hearken to Satan than to God, and would be with him in his work. You have given yourself up to him, to be subject to his power and government, in opposition to God. How justly, therefore, may God also give you up to him, and leave you in his power, to accomplish your ruin. Seeing you have yielded yourself to his will, to do as he would have you, surely God may leave you in his hands to execute his will upon you. If men will be with God's enemy, and on his side, why is God obliged to redeem them out of his hands, when they have done his work? Doubtless you would be glad to serve the devil, and be God's enemy while you live, and then to have God your friend, and deliver you from the devil, when you come to die. But will God be unjust if he deals otherwise by you? No, surely. It will be altogether and perfectly just, that you should have your portion with him with whom you have chosen to work, and that you should be in his possession to whose dominion you have yielded yourself, and if you cry to God for deliverance, he may most justly give you that answer, Judges 10.14, Go to the gods which you have chosen. 5. Consider how often you have refused to hear God's calls to you, and how just it would therefore be if he should refuse to hear you when you call upon him. You are ready, it may be, to complain that you have often prayed and earnestly begged of God to show you mercy, and yet have no answer of prayer. One says, I have been constant in prayer for so many years, and God has not heard me. Another says, I have done what I can. I have prayed as earnestly as I am able. I do not see how I can do more, and it will seem hard if after all I am denied. 
but do you consider how often God has called, and you have denied him? God has called earnestly, and for a long time. He has called and called again in his word, and in his providence, and you have refused. You were not uneasy for fear you should not show regard enough to his calls. You let him call as loud and as long as he could. For your part, you had no leisure to attend to what he said. You had other business to mind. You had these and those lusts to gratify and please, and worldly concerns to attend. You could not afford to stand considering of what God had to say to you. When the ministers of Christ have stood and pleaded with you in his name Sabbath after Sabbath, and have even spent their strength in it, how little was you moved. It did not alter you, but you went on still as you used to do. When you went away, you returned again to your sins, to your lasciviousness, to your vain mirth, to your covetousness, to your intemperance, and that has been the language of your heart and practice. Exodus 5.2 Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Was it no crime for you to refuse to hear when God called? And yet is it now very hard that God does not hear your earnest calls, and that, though your calling on God be not from any respect to him, but merely from self-love? The devil would beg as earnestly as you, if he had any hope to get salvation by it, and a thousand times as earnestly, and yet be as much of a devil as he is now. Are your calls more worthy to be heard than God's? Or is God more obliged to regard what you say to him than you to regard his commands, counsels, and invitations to you? What can be more justice than this, Proverbs one twenty four, etc., quote, Because I have called, and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded, but ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity, I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. 6. Have you not taken encouragement to sin against God, on that very presumption, that God would show you mercy when you sought it? And may not God justly refuse you that mercy that you have so presumed upon? You have flattered yourself, that though you did so, yet God would show you mercy when you cried earnestly to him for it. How righteous therefore it would be in God, to disappoint such a wicked presumption! It was upon that very hope that you dared to affront the majesty of heaven so dreadfully as you have done. And can you now be so sottish as to think that God is obliged not to frustrate that hope? When a sinner takes encouragement to neglect secret prayer which God has commanded, to gratify his lusts, to live a carnal vain life, to thwart God, to run upon him, and condemn him to his face, thinking with himself, if I do so, God would not damn me, he is a merciful God, and therefore when I seek his mercy, he will bestow it upon me. Must God be accounted hard because he will not do according to such a sinner's presumption? Cannot he be excused from showing such a sinner mercy, when he is pleased to seek it, without incurring the charge of being unjust? If this be the case, God has no liberty to vindicate his own honor and majesty, but must lay himself open to all manner of affronts, and yield himself up to the abuse of vile men, though they disobey, despise, and dishonor him, 
as much as they will. And when they have done, his mercy and pardoning grace must not be in his own power and at his own disposal, but he must be obliged to dispense it at their call. He must take those bold and vile contemners of his majesty, when it suits them to ask it, and must forgive all their sins, and not only so, but must adopt them into his family, and make them his children, and bestow eternal glory upon them. What mean, low, and strange thoughts have such men of God, who think thus of him? Consider that you have injured God the more, and have been the worse enemy to him, for his being a merciful God. So have you treated that attribute of God's mercy. How just is it, therefore, that you never should have any benefit of that attribute? There is something peculiarly heinous in sinning against the mercy of God more than other attributes. There is such base and horrid ingratitude in being the worst to God because he is a being of infinite goodness and grace, that it above all things renders wickedness vile and detestable. This ought to win us and engage us to serve God better. But instead of that, to sin against him all the more has something inexpressibly bad in it, and does in a peculiar manner enhance guilt and incense wrath. As seems to be intimated, Romans 2, 4 and 5, quote, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. End quote. The greater the mercy of God is, the more should you be engaged to love him and live to his glory. But it has been contrarywise with you. The consideration of the mercies of God being so exceeding great is the thing wherewith you have encouraged yourself in sin. You have heard that the mercy of God was without bounds, that it was sufficient to pardon the greatest sinner, and you have upon that very account ventured to be a very great sinner. Though it was very offensive to God, though you heard that God infinitely hated sin, and that such practices as you went on in were exceeding contrary to his nature, will, and glory, yet that did not make you uneasy. You heard that he was a very merciful God, and had grace enough to pardon you, and so cared not how offensive your sins were to him. How long have some of you gone on in sin, and what great sins have some of you been guilty of, on that presumption? Your own conscience can give testimony to it, that this has made you refuse God's calls, and has made you regardless of his repeated commands. Now, how righteous would it be, if God should swear in his wrath, that you should never be the better for his being infinitely merciful? Your ingratitude has been the greater, that you have not only abused the attribute of God's mercy, taking encouragement from it to continue in sin, but you have also presumed that God would exercise infinite mercy to you in particular, which consideration should have especially endeared God to you. You have taken encouragement to sin the more, from that consideration, that Christ came into the world and died to save sinners. Such thanks has Christ had from you for enduring such a tormenting death for his enemies. Now, how justly might God refuse that you should ever be the better for his son's laying down his life? It was because of these things that you put off seeking salvation. You would take the pleasures of sin still longer, hardening yourself because mercy was infinite, and it would not be too late if you sought it afterwards. 
Now, how justly may God disappoint you in this, and so order it that it shall be too late. 7. How have some of you risen up against God, and in the frame of your minds opposed him in his sovereign dispensations? And how justly upon that account might God oppose you, and set himself against you? You never yet would submit to God, never willingly comply, that God should have dominion over the world, and that he should govern it for his own glory according to his own wisdom. You, a poor worm, a potsherd, a broken piece of an earthen vessel, have dared to find fault and quarrel with God. Isaiah 45.9 Woe to him that striveth with his Maker! Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou? But yet you have ventured to do it. Romans 9.20 Who art thou, O man, that repliest against God? But yet you have thought you was big enough. You have taken upon you to call God to account why he does thus and thus. You have said to Jehovah, What dost thou? If you have been restrained by fear from openly venting your opposition and enmity of heart against God's government, yet it has been in you. You have not been quiet in the frame of your mind. You have had the heart of a viper within, and have been ready to spit your venom at God. It is well if sometimes you have not actually done it, by tolerating blasphemous thoughts and malignant risings of heart against him, yea, and the frame of your heart in some measure appeared in impatient and fretful behavior. Now, seeing you have thus opposed God, how just is it that God should oppose you? Or is it because you are so much better and so much greater than God, that it is a crime for him to make that opposition against you which you make against him? Do you think that the liberty of making opposition is your exclusive prerogative, so that you may be an enemy to God, but God must by no means be an enemy to you, but must be looked upon under obligation nevertheless to help you, and save you by his blood, and bestow his best blessings upon you? Consider how in the frame of your mind you have thwarted God in those very exercises of mercy towards others that you are seeking for yourself. God exercising his infinite grace towards your neighbors has put you into an ill frame, and it may be sent you into a tumult of mind. How justly, therefore, may God refuse ever to exercise that mercy towards you? Have you not thus opposed God showing mercy to others, even at the very time when you pretended to be in earnest with God for pity and help for yourself? Yea, and while you was endeavoring to get something wherewith to recommend yourself to God? And will you look to God still with a challenge of mercy, and contend with him for it notwithstanding? Can you who have such a heart, and have thus behaved yourself, come to God for any other than mere sovereign mercy? 2. If you should forever be cast off by God, it would be agreeable to your treatment of Jesus Christ. It would have been just with God if he had cast you off forever, without ever making you the offer of a Savior. But God hath not done that. He has provided a Savior for sinners, and offered him to you, even his own Son Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior of men. All that are not forever cast off are saved by him. God offers men salvation through him, and has promised us that if we come to him, we shall not be cast off. But if you have treated and still treat this Savior after such a manner, that if you should be eternally cast off by God, 
it would be most agreeable to your behavior towards him, which appears by this, viz., that you reject Christ and will not have him for your Savior. If God offers you a Savior from deserved punishment, and you will not receive him, then surely it is just that you should go without a Savior. Or is God obliged, because you do not like this Savior, to provide you another? Has he given an infinitely honorable and glorious person, even his only begotten Son, to be a sacrifice for sin, and so provided salvation, and this Savior is offered to you? Now if you refuse to accept him, is God therefore unjust if he does not save you? Is he obliged to save you in a way of your own choosing, because you do not like the way of his choosing? Or will you charge Christ with injustice, because he does not become your Savior, when at the same time you will not have him when he offers himself to you, and beseeches you to accept of him as your Savior? I am sensible that by this time many persons are ready to object against this. If all should speak what they now think, we should hear a murmuring all over the meeting-house, and one and another would say, I cannot see how this can be, that I am not willing that Christ should be my Savior, when I would give all the world that he was my Savior. How is it possible that I should not be willing to have Christ for my Savior, when this is what I am seeking after, and praying for, and striving for, as for my life? Here, therefore, I would endeavor to convince you that you are under a gross mistake in this matter. And, first, I would endeavor to show the grounds of your mistake, and secondly, to demonstrate to you that you have rejected and do willfully reject Jesus Christ. First, that you may see the weak grounds of your mistake, consider, 1. There is a great deal of difference between a willingness not to be damned and a being willing to receive Christ for your Savior. You have the former, there is no doubt of that. Nobody supposes that you love misery so as to choose an eternity of it and so doubtless you are willing to be saved from eternal misery. But that is a very different thing from being willing to come to Christ. Persons very commonly mistake the one for the other, but they are quite two things. You may love the deliverance, but hate the deliverer. You tell of a willingness, but consider what is the object of that willingness. It does not respect Christ. The way of salvation by him is not at all the object of it but it is wholly terminated on your escape from misery. The inclination of your will goes no further than self, it never reaches Christ. You are willing not to be miserable, that is, you love yourself, and there your will and choice terminate. And it is but a vain pretense and delusion to say or think that you are willing to accept of Christ. 2. There is certainly a great deal of difference between a forced compliance and a free willingness. Force and freedom cannot consist together. Now that willingness whereby you think you are willing to have Christ for a Savior is merely a forced thing. Your heart does not go out after Christ of itself, but you are forced and driven to seek an interest in him. Christ has no share at all in your heart. There is no manner of closing of the heart with him. This forced compliance is not what Christ seeks of you. He seeks a free and willing acceptance, Psalm 110, verse 3, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. He seeks not that you should receive him against your will, but with a free will. He seeks entertainment in your heart and choice. And if you refuse thus to receive Christ, 
How just is it that Christ should refuse to receive you? How reasonable are Christ's terms, who offers to save all those that willingly, or with a good will, accept of him for their Savior? Who can rationally expect that Christ should force himself upon any man to be his Savior? Or what can be looked for more reasonable than that all who would be saved by Christ should heartily and freely entertain him? And surely it would be very dishonorable for Christ to offer himself upon lower terms. But I would now proceed, secondly, to show that you are not willing to have Christ for a Savior. To convince you of it, consider, one, how it is possible that you should be willing to accept of Christ as a Savior from the desert of a punishment that you are not sensible you have deserved. If you are truly willing to accept of Christ as a Savior, it must be as a sacrifice to make atonement for your guilt. Christ came into the world on this errand to offer himself as an atonement, to answer for our desert of punishment. But how can you be willing to have Christ as a Savior from a desert of hell, if you be not sensible that you have a desert of hell? If you have not really deserved everlasting burnings in hell, then the very offer of an atonement for such a desert is an imposition upon you. If you have no such guilt upon you, then the very offer of a satisfaction for that guilt is an injury, because it implies in it a charge of guilt that you are free from. Now therefore it is impossible that a man who is not convinced of his guilt can be willing to accept of such an offer, because he cannot be willing to accept the charge which the offer implies. A man who is not convinced that he has deserved so dreadful a punishment cannot willingly submit to be charged with it. If he thinks he is willing, it is but a mere forced, feigned business, because in his heart he looks upon himself greatly injured, and therefore he cannot freely accept of Christ under that notion of a Savior from the desert of such a punishment, for such an acceptance is an explicit owning that he does deserve such a punishment. I do not say but that men may be willing to be saved from an undeserved punishment, they may rather not suffer it than suffer it. But a man cannot be willing to accept one at God's hands under the notion of a Savior from a punishment deserved from him which he thinks he has not deserved. It is impossible that any one should freely allow a Savior under that notion. Such an one cannot like the way of salvation by Christ. For if he thinks he has not deserved hell, then he will think that freedom from hell is a debt, and therefore cannot willingly and heartily receive it as a free gift. If a king should condemn a man to some tormenting death, which the condemned person thought himself not deserving of, but looked upon the sentence as unjust and cruel, and the king, when the time of execution drew nigh, should offer him his pardon, under the notion of a very great act of grace and clemency, the condemned person never would willingly and heartily allow it under that notion, because he judged himself unjustly condemned. Now by this it is evident that you are not willing to accept of Christ as your Savior, because you never yet had such a sense of your own sinfulness, and such a conviction of your own great guilt in God's sight, as to be indeed convinced that you lay justly condemned to the punishment of hell. You never was convinced that you had forfeited all favor, and was in God's hands, and at his sovereign and arbitrary disposal to be either destroyed or saved, just as he pleased. You never yet was convinced of the sovereignty of God. 
hence are there so many objections arising against the justice of your punishment from original sin and from god's decree from mercy shown to others and the like two that you are not sincerely willing to accept of christ as your saviour appears by this that you never have been convinced that he is sufficient for the work of your salvation you never had a sight or a sense of any such excellency or worthiness in Christ as should give such great value to his blood and his mediation with God as that it was sufficient to be accepted for such exceeding guilty creatures who have so provoked God and exposed themselves to such amazing wrath. Saying it is so and allowing it to be as others say is a very different thing from being really convinced of it and a being made sensible of it in your own heart. The sufficiency of Christ depends upon, or rather consists, in his excellency. It is because he is so excellent a person that his blood is of sufficient value to atone for sin, and it is hence that his obedience is so worthy in God's sight. It is also hence that his intercession is so prevalent. And therefore those that never had any spiritual sight or sense of Christ's excellency cannot be sensible of his sufficiency and that sinners are not convinced that Christ is sufficient for the work he has undertaken, appears most manifestly when they are under great convictions of their sin and danger of God's wrath. Though it may be before they thought they could allow Christ to be sufficient, for it is easy to allow anyone to be sufficient for our defense at a time when we see no danger, yet when they come to be sensible of their guilt and God's wrath, what discouraging thoughts do they entertain? How are they ready to draw towards despair, as if there were no hope or help for such wicked creatures as they? The reason is, they have no apprehension or sense of any other way that God's majesty can be vindicated, but only in their misery. To tell them of the blood of Christ signifies nothing, it does not relieve their sinking, despairing hearts. This makes it most evident that they are not convinced that Christ is sufficient to be their mediator, and as long as they are unconvinced of this, it is impossible that they should be willing to accept of him as their mediator and saviour. A man in distressing fear will not willingly betake himself to a fort that he judges not sufficient to defend him from the enemy. A man will not willingly venture out into the ocean in a ship that he suspects is leaky and will sink before he gets through his voyage. 3. It is evident that you are not willing to have Christ for your Saviour, because you have so mean an opinion of him, that you durst not trust his faithfulness. One that undertakes to be the Saviour of souls had need be faithful, for if he fails in such a trust, how great is the loss! But you are not convinced of Christ's faithfulness, as is evident, because at such times as when you are in a considerable measure sensible of your guilt and God's anger, you cannot be convinced that Christ is willing to accept of you, or that he stands ready to receive you, if you should come to him, though Christ so much invites you to come to him, and has so fully declared that he will not reject you if you do come. As particularly, John 6.37, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Now there is no man can be heartily willing to trust his eternal welfare in the hands of an unfaithful person, or one whose faithfulness he suspects. 4. You are not willing to be saved in that way by Christ, as is evident, because you are not willing that your own goodness should be set at naught. 
in the way of salvation by christ men's own goodness is wholly set at naught there is no account at all made of it now you cannot be willing to be saved in a way wherein your own goodness is set at naught as is evident because you make much of it yourself you make much of your prayers and pains in religion and are often thinking of them how considerable do they appear to you when you look back upon them and some of you are thinking how much more you have done than others and expecting some respect or regard that god should manifest to what you do now if you make so much of what you do yourself it is impossible that you should be freely willing that god should make nothing of it as we may see in other things if a man is proud of a great estate or if he values himself much upon his honorable office or his great abilities it is impossible that he should like it and heartily approve of it that others should make light of these things and despise them seeing therefore it is so evident that you refuse to accept of christ as your saviour why is christ to be blamed that he does not save you christ has offered himself to you to be your saviour in time past and he continues offering himself still and you continue to reject him and yet complain that he does not save you so strangely unreasonable and inconsistent with themselves are gospel sinners. End of section 27